Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 27 in our series for 2015. And today's date is Friday the 7th of August. Leon, what's on the plan for this week? We're going to have a chat with a guy called Chris Noon, who runs a company called Collaborate, and that actually plays an active role in the sharing economy, and it helps build trust between people, and it uh, has a company behind outfits like Drive My Car and My Caravan. For example, most, as Chris says, most people say they've got a caravan, they might use it for four weeks in a year, and it's it's quite an asset. I mean, it might be $20,000, $30,000. But you've, the question is, you've got to trust the person you're renting it to. Yeah, and Chris is the guy that understands sorting out trustworthiness. And then we're going to have a chat with economist uh, Nicholas Grian, and we're going to be talking all about the TPP and the issues with it. And uh, Nicholas has quite a stern view about it all. That's right. But first of all, let's have a chat with Chris Noon. We spoke to him on Skype, and we opened by asking him to tell us about the form of his company, where it came from. So Collaborate Corporation is a publicly listed Australian company. We focus fully on collaborative consumption opportunities, which uh, could also be described as the sharing economy or peer-to-peer marketplaces. So we make it easy, safe and possible for people and corporations to make their assets available for rental to other people or corporations. You'd be uh, working with online peer-to-peer marketplaces like Drive My Car and My Caravan? That's right. So we currently operate three marketplaces. Drive My Car, which is Australia's um, leading peer-to-peer car rental business. We've also launched My Caravan, peer-to-peer caravan rentals. And we also have Rentoid, which is uh, rental of household and uh, hardware items as well. Uh, You've recently launched PeerPass, is that right? That's right. So PeerPass is our trust and reputation platform. Uh, We recognise that what the peer-to-peer industry really needs is a way for people to be able to verify their trustworthiness. It's very important in our business. And over the five years that we've been in this uh, industry, we've developed a lot of technology to um, both verify people before they enter our marketplaces, but also to provide ratings and feedback on their performance uh, in their in their dealings with other people. So we do um, ID checks. We can go back to the Attorney General's Department uh, through the DVS service and verify driver's licenses, passport and Medicare cards and other details. Uh, We also perform credit checks. Uh, We run anti-fraud detection software on credit card payments. And then we have star ratings and uh, feedback on actual rentals as well. So what we try to do is make sure that only good, trustworthy people get on the platform and that once they're on the platform, we, we have constant sort of updated feedback so people can see you know, how they are transacting and interacting with other people on our platforms. Is there any particular technology used for that sort of verification? Uh, we use a number of what PeerPass does, and it's really a world first, is really tie together a lot of the technology we've developed internally, but also technology uh, from third parties. So we use uh, Green ID from Identity to do the uh, online ID verification. We use credit checks from Vader. Um, we have some other third parties who provide some of the, uh, the t- technology as well. So no one's really put all these together and created them as a product specifically relevant to -to peer-to-peer marketplaces. Um, The way we see the opportunity is PayPal. eBay was very successful because it had the PayPal um, payment platform. It provided a very easy 
one-stop way to register once to do payments and then be able to do um, multiple transactions through that payment gateway. Uh, We see the same sort of challenge and opportunity with the peer-to-peer market as well because we uh, feel that people don't really want to register separately on 20 different peer-to-peer sites. It would be beneficial for the sites themselves and also the consumers to have one registration, one verification, and for that verification to travel with you across a number of different sites so that your actual online presence and your online behavior has some sort of impact on you know, uh, your rating and your perception uh, when you're dealing with other people. I've read that uh, you know, the share economy is, uh, I mean, there's speculation that could be worth over $300 billion by within the next 10 years. I mean, where do you see it traveling? We think there is certainly massive potential for the market. The way we look at the world, we see it as being made up of millions of millions of underutilized assets. And peer-to-peer really is a solution to that big problem of assets lying idle and not being utilized. We, you know, the, the reason those assets are lying idle is because there's no discovery, so people don't know that they're available to be used. Uh, also, there's no trust. You know, if people do find out about an asset that's available to rent, um, you know, how do you verify that person, their ID? How do you under- verify whether they can pay? How do you put together a rental agreement? How do you organise insurance? We solve all those problems so that we turn underutilized assets into monetized assets. So if you look at the world from that point of view and and you just need to look out the window at at buildings, at cars, at caravans, at construction equipment, um, you know, if you're out in the out in the bush, it's farming equipment and mining equipment. There are many millions of, of assets that are sitting there. Um, they're idle because of the lack of discovery and trust, and that's what we deliver. How far you know down you could go, almost to personal items, furniture, and this sort of thing. Or do you, you want to stick up there with the uh, high-value equipment? We're already um, playing in the in this sort of lower-cost space with our Rentoid um, platform that's been operating for a number of years now. Um, our major focus at the moment is on cars. Well, that's a $3 billion market in Australia. We see that's a big opportunity for disruption. Our next major focus is caravans as well. There's, there's half a million caravans in Australia. Uh, I think everyone's aware that they usually get used for about four weeks a year. So those they're, they're a massive underutilized asset um, and caravanning as a holiday option is increasing in importance uh, year on year. So we see that there's a, a massive opportunity to, to link up the owners of those caravans with people who, who'd like to experience them. What else can be shared? I mean, we've already got Airbnb in the accommodation space. We've got What else can be shared? Well, there's lots of different things. Essentially, there's any type of asset can be shared, provided there's the right discovery and the right trust is developed. You could look at mining equipment. You could look at you know, vacant land. You could look at commercial space. Um, and quite often, these things are not uh, not rented out when they're not being uh, used because um, it's just too hard. We, we make it easy so those things do become possible. Uh, there's also opportunities for peer-to-peer in the financial services space as well. So it's not just physical assets and rental. There are lots of opportunities for um, consumers to pool together and you know, have a sort of group, group buying power to, to work with you know, financial services type products. And there's also opportunities for people to come in on the other side, you know, in funding uh, those sort of services as well. So it's, you know, peer-to-peer markers, marketplaces work well when there's mutual benefits for everyone who participates. And that's what we, we see our role as facilitating that mutual benefit for all parties. So really, you're in the assurance business in a way, aren't you? That Would you contemplate getting into 
something like checking out the uh, people who drive around in Uber cars, this sort of thing? Um, Uber have their own checks. Um, some, of, some of their checks um, are fairly deep. Um, a lot of the checks that we do on our areas are a lot deeper than they do. So there's uh, the way we've developed PeerPass, it, it could be used uh, by third parties such as Uber. And, you know, we definitely see that there's potential for PeerPass both, you know, in Australia but also globally as well. So do you see yourself sort of licensing out PeerPass to other parts of the sharing economy? Yeah, that's a definite opportunity for us. So we've developed it initially for our own purposes, but we but our vision for the product is is it could be you know ubiquitous platform right across the industry. And so, would there be any particular sectors you'd be targeting there? Any particular markets? Look at. At the core of it, any type of peer-to-peer market where trust is paramount, um, that's an area where PeerPass could be used. You know, a good example is in the car rental business. If you go and rent a car from one of the traditional car rental companies like Hertz or Avis or, or Thrifty, uh, they say, let's have a look at your license and you hand over a credit card and you drive off in a car. Um, if that car gets lost or stolen, they sort of say, well, we've got a th- another thousand cars. That's all right. We'll write that off. That's that's waste." However, you know, in a peer-to-peer market, if one car goes missing, that's one car that's owned by one person. So we can't be as laissez-faire with the assets as, as large corporations can be with, with assets that they can write off. So there's a much greater requirement for protection of owners of assets in peer-to-peer market, and that's where we see us providing the solution. Once, uh, once the trust is there, that, that uh, peer-to-peer will really take off, I'd imagine. That's right. You know, we, we see that our role is to build trust. The more we build trust, the more people we will convince to make their assets available in peer-to-peer markets. So you know, by building trust, we, we build traction, we build confidence, and that makes the market larger. Chris Noon, thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much. Yeah, well, as we say, I mean, the, the key to that business, and it's a growing business worldwide, is uh, trust. That's right. And uh, I think it'll, I think that'll be increasingly important in the sh- as the sharing economy takes off. Okay, now Nicholas and the TPP. So let's talk about the TPP. Well, the TPP is a is one of a string of disasters for the community that is promoting this. The um, uh, the owners of intellectual property and various other things around the world. Uh, so they've tried this with the anti counterfeiting uh, agreement, and they're now trying it with agreements between the United States and a bunch of countries in the Pacific, and then one between the United States and Europe. And every time the agreement is negotiated in secret and then presented to parliaments and parliaments look at it and for reasons that are not particularly pure won't let them pass and so I think that's basically what's happening with the TPP. The TPP doesn't look like a good deal for Australia but we don't really know because the whole thing for years and years has been negotiated in secret. Well, they were negotiating it this week and they were talking about it finishing up on uh, the 31st of July, which was today, but chances are it's not going to get through. So uh, where do you see it travelling? Um, well, it'll be, it'll be a circus and it will, it's entertained us for many, many years. Uh, and I've been quite involved in this. So I've been along to DFAT consultations with industry, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and they say, we want to consult with you. And everybody says that, thank you. And of course, they all feel happy to be in the building and flattered to be one of the people consulted. And then they say, well, what do you think? And and the people that kind of, that's kind of where the sensible conversation ends. Because, uh, you know, if I was telling you that um, someone was negotiating a 
deal about your property rights around your house uh, and they were going to consult you, you'd say, well, what what are you negotiating? <laughs> What's in the text? And whenever you ask that, they say, well, we can't tell you. Now, it's really an incredible situation. It, it, to just describe it makes you sound like you're out on the streets. You're one of the sort of Occupy Wall Street people. American firms, Disney, Eli Lilly, uh, I think Eli Lilly is an American firm, uh, Pfizer is an American firm, via their industry advisory group, they actually have access to the negotiating text. They know what the agreement's about. They're proposing text uh, for the agreement and our people are not. It's just extraordinary. You know, it's that's... That's the one amazing feature of it. Uh, I can tell you plenty of others. It's just an extraordinary. Uh, it's just an extraordinary try on, and I would imagine it will become. It'll come unstuck like the other, like the other attempts. So, how should the TPP negotiations proceed? Well, firstly, the people negotiating their country for their countries need to have some strategic idea of what the, what is in their country's interests. Now, firstly, it's not in any country's interest to retrospectively extend intellectual property terms. So if you say uh, pay, people who invent things need more incentive to invent them, as we did in the TRIPS round uh, of the GATT negotiations in the 80s, it was actually, uh, and early 90s, uh, people said, well, 16 years isn't enough incentive. People want, the people need 20 years. Now, if you do the sums on that, that's very implausible. But what blows it out of the water as an argument is that the people who were seeking the patent extension wanted it retrospectively. In other words, they wanted it to apply to existing running patents. Now, the only reason you... And patents impose costs on consumers, and the reason you we have them is to encourage people to invent things. So we certainly don't need to increase the incentive on stuff that's already been invented and brought to market. So these are the kinds of things that invariably turn up in these agreements. And in fact, the sad thing is we've agreed to a lot of these. Uh, we agreed to retrospective patent extensions. Um, the Prime Minister of New Zealand is last week or perhaps earlier this week was saying was basically saying, yes, drugs in New Zealand will get more expensive, but don't worry about that. You won't have to pay. The government will pay. It's a reasonable question whether should, if we pay more for drugs, will we get more and better drugs? And if you try and do the work, the answer is no. And um, and it's certainly no for extending the patent terms of existing dr drugs that are already on the market. So to get back to your question, what should we do? We should have a strategic idea of what our interests are. We should simply say that as a matter of principle, there are a whole range of things we can, we can make very strong statements about as a matter of principle. That is, we're not agreeing to any retrospective extensions of intellectual property terms. We can say we're not participating in a negotiation that's secret. We can say we want the Productivity Commission to do a scoping analysis of the negotiating text that you guys put up because the Americans are the ones who are trying to trying to get these things done. They will provide us with a public report and then when the negotiation is finished, the, the document which the negotiators propose to sign 
should again be subject to proper, transparent, independent economic analysis. Uh, now, the chairman of the Productivity Commission, Peter Harris, proposed this in a speech uh, to a parliamentary uh, trade and industry committee or trade and something committee, and that's on the uh, his proposal along those lines is on the PC website. I mean, he made this proposal on the 21st of July, of July of this year, quite recently, and it just makes perfect sense. In fact, what I'd like to see is Australia taking a leadership role and getting the Productivity Commission to do an economic analysis, uh, not just for Australia, but for other countries. And we would then be able to co-opt them into representing their own interests rather than this uh, kind of ridiculous funfair that we've got with secret negotiations with one party that uh, is informed and everybody else uh, doesn't know what they're doing. Bottom line, though, is that you can't see it getting up in the present conditions, so could you? I, I think it's pretty hard to see that. You know, our politicians gave up political courage some time ago, and I think it's fairly politically courageous to negotiate these kinds of things in secret and then say to the say to a uh, a parliament full of greens and randos and opponents uh here sign here this is a great deal for australia no one's ever made it at all clear what we gain and what we lose is fairly clear and i haven't even begun to talk about investor state dispute settlement uh so that's another charming little thing that we're signing up to and at least to their credit, when the Labor Party was in opposition, it opposed or it, it sounded awfully like I sound. And then when it got into government, it went press, it pressed ahead and tried to get an agreement and defended the secrecy and all that sort of stuff. But at least it didn't like in, investor state dispute settlement. Um, and I'll explain what that is if you'd like me to in a sec. Uh, but the current government thinks that's okay too. So uh, it's an absolute. I'll be amazed if uh, if the if, if the Australian Parliament uh, agrees to this. But it would be pretty amazing that the agreement gets up. Period. Because yeah, uh, yeah, because it's just a crock of of something I won't I won't elaborate on. But it's just a it's just a it's it's awful. It's it's just a, a, an a, an incredible abuse of process of trust. It's run by self interested corporations with the USTR, the US Trade Rep representative their cat's paw. You know, that's that's how trade policy works. I'm not trying to say that that's, you know, you know, there's nothing very unusual about that. What is unusual is the failure of all of the balancing interests. Uh, and I'm, by balancing interests, I'm talking about self-interest, actually. So there's lots of lefties against the against this, and that's fine. But I'm kind of sad that free market people... Uh, and business people don't see this for the abuse of process, bad government and bad economics that it seems almost certain to be. And uh, and as you say, it won't get up because of that reason. I don't think it'll get up, but that's just me being a political pundit and nobody can predict the future. Uh, it's certainly worth trying to stop it getting up, that's for sure. Nicholas Green, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon. Thank you. Well, what do you think, Leon? Oh, I think I think it's got uh, he's, he's got very strong arguments, and it sort of really raises questions for me whether the TPP is ever going to get off the ground. Well, I don't think it'll ever get. I mean, you've got Andrew Robb coming back from this last series saying, "Oh, yeah, it was very 
It was very constructive and all that, and that's a load of rubbish. Well, very constructive, but they didn't have a deal. No, that's right. There's no deal. Dairy and sugar are both off the table. So what are we talking about? And sugar is the big issue in Australia, of course. Absolutely, and dairy in New Zealand, and neither neither changed in the US. And dairy is the backbone of the New Zealand economy, and, and of course, uh, sugar is, plays a big role here, and uh, as well as that, the US farmers have been uh, paying uh, their Republicans to very heavily. That's right, and of course, now with relations opening with Cuba, the sugar thing's going to get even even worse. That's right. Anyway, to this week's news, Gary, and uh, Greece's share market opened this week and it plummeted 16% on its first day of trade after clearing close for five weeks as investors released built-up fears about the country's future. London analysts had warned of hefty falls of up to 20% in early trade. And at the closing bell, the Athens Stock Exchange's benchmark ATG equity index had dived 16.2%. Banking stocks, which account for around one-fifth of the benchmark capitalization fell about 30%. That to me is saying that no one has any confidence there, the banks are going to be around for a long time. Well, no, that's right. And I think we'll see as uh, this next week goes on further drops. Well, the issue is that the banks are on a drip feed from the European Union and the European Central Bank. And Europe is getting increasingly nervous about uh, pouring any more money in there. That's right. As a result, Standard & Poor's changed the outlook for the European Union from stable to negative after the bloc's support for Greece and following Britain's decision to vote on leaving the EU. And the decision means the US ratings agency could lower its grade for the European Union, which is now at AA plus in the next two years. So that's a space to watch. Meanwhile, to China and manufacturing there in the world's second largest economy has run in an, into an unexpected pothole with orders following to their lowest level in two years. The private Kaijin market manufacturing purchasing index, or the PMI, measuring factory activity in China fell from 49.4 to 47.8 in July. Now, anything below 50 shows the sector is contracting, and this reading is the lowest since July 2013, when it hit 47.8. I mean, that's slightly below the latest reading, but it's still in the same ballpark. And at the same time, the official PMI, which tracks larger companies, fell from 50.2 to 50. Yeah, meaning it's flatlining. That's right. So that's a, it's a problem. Now, in America, and life for America's coal industry is about to get even tougher after President Obama rolled out new rules aimed at reducing America's coal-burning power plants' greenhouse gas emissions. And under this new plan, they're looking for a 32% emissions cut by 2030 as compared with 2005 levels. And these goals are even steeper than previously expected and already this force this plan faces tough resistance the murray energy corporation which is a big coal mining company there actually plans to sue the obama administration and more than a dozen states and other companies are expected to take similar action yeah well ultimately i mean it's sort of a it's very similar to the setup here where you know coal big coal is a very political issue very very political so watch that space now the abbott government is still hoping that the world's biggest regional trade deal is still within reach despite Australia walking away empty-handed from the latest talks. Now, trade ministers from 12 participating nations failed to reach a final agreement on the $200 billion pact, and Trade Minister Andrew Robb failed to keep working, labelling the Hawaii round of talks as his most productive yet. And he reckons more than 90% of the issues have been thrashed out. But there are still concerns about automotives, data protection, biologics, dairy and sugar. They are the sticking points. Yeah, and those are big items. That's right. Now, Andrew Robb reckons it's not impossible to resolve, but as Nicholas Gruen pointed out, there are 
big issues there, and it's a whole process there that really raises the question. Yeah, just paying lip service, the whole idea, basically. Yeah, and trouble is no one knows when the next meeting is. Now, uh, households in Australia are now under more pressure with sharp fall in household comfort and rising financial pressures in the first half of this year. A new report from ME, which was formerly known as ME Bank, says financial comfort has fallen 3% for households paying off mortgages and 5% for homeowners. And the most stress is falling on renters, and their comfort levels have fallen 12%. Now, the ME Household Financial Comfort Report found that household confidence in dealing with a financial emergency, like a job loss, has plummeted 11%, and fewer households were reporting an increase in income. Indeed, more were saying they'll bring in less. Yeah, and uh, in the um, western sides of Sydney and Melbourne, where income is uh, pretty tight and unemployment's higher, it'll be even worse. That's right. Now, uh, Indian energy giant Adani has suffered another blow to its ambitions to enter the Australian coal market after the federal court overturned part of its environmental approval for its $16.5 billion Carmichael mine in central Queensland. Now, the environmental authority for the Carmichael mine in the Galilee Basin, which is about 500 kilometres from the Queensland coast, has been set aside following the court action by the Mackay Conservation Group, which said the Environment Minister had not considered departmental advice about two threatened species, the yakka skink and the ornamental snake. <laughs> now, the Federal Minister, Greg Hunt, is now required to reassess one aspect of the approval process under the Environment Protection Biodiversity Conservation Act. The department says it'll take him about six to eight weeks. And Adani says that it's going to wait patiently but it reckons it was a departmental stuff-up with the paperwork. Yeah, well, I reckon Adani's on a bit of a kicking because if you think about East Link and here in Melbourne, the uh, tollway, they had to build two big tunnels at the cost of several billion dollars because of a butterfly. There's a butterfly up in the Mullum Mullum Creek. It's the only place in the world where this butterfly breeds and the environmental people said, dig a tunnel, don't change, don't mess around with the creek. So that's what they had to do. Now, yeah. now the, the problem, though, is about the future of the Carmichael mine because, of course, Adani's uh, was getting advice and help from the Commonwealth Bank and that relationship has ended. Yeah, they pulled out. They pulled out. Yep. So we don't know whether Carmichael's going to go ahead. I don't know what Adani's going to do when the CBA gone. That's good news for a conservationist if you're a conservationist. Bad news if you're the Queensland government looking to build up the economy there. And also may impact on the uh, Chinese mine. That's right. Now, streaming service QuickFlix has struck a tentative deal to acquire a Shanghai-based f- film and television firm and create a global stream platform. That's a day after losing out on a Foxtel and Seven joint venture. Now, the non-binding memorandum of understanding proposes a platform that will distribute Chinese film and television into Chinese and international market. And that comes a day after QuickClick said it lost a deal to secure a reseller's agreement with the Foxtel and Seven joint venture Presto. Now, the Chinese company, which QuickClick's declined to name, is profitable. It generates free cash flow and makes original language film and TV. Now, that's unlike QuickClick's, I might add, which recorded an $8.6 million loss in the six months of December, which is a figure more than double last year's $4.2 million loss. Now, uh, sales expectations have rebounded sharply, reaching their highest level for more than a decade, and a strong signal the business community has a more optimistic outlook for the fourth quarter 2015. In marked contrast to the preceding period, Dun & Bradstreet's latest business expectations survey reveals the sales sales expectations index for the fourth quarter surged to 40.8 points, up from 28.6 points last quarter. That's the highest level recorded since the fourth quarter of 2003. So that's uh, 
more than 12 years. And uh, some 48% of companies uh, surveyed expect to see an increase in sales in the fourth quarter of 2015. Now, what's driving it, of course, is a combination of competitive pricing, a lower Australian dollar, favourable borrowing costs, and government measures targeting small to medium-sized business in the last budget. And that appears to have offset concerns surrounding weak demand for goods and services and a lack of consumer confidence. Mm, a little bright light there. That's right. Now, at the same time, though, Australia's de- trade deficit widened to $2.8 billion. Now, the trade deficit, Australia's been in deficit since April 2014 and settling at around $3 billion. Now, according to the data from the ABS, imports grew 4%, which is faster than export, which rose only 3%. And rural goods exports declined by 0.6%, which is a second monthly decline in cereals and grains. And economists say lacklustre bulk commodity prices, shipment delays of LNG in Queensland, and the risk of delays at the Gorgon and Wheatstone are likely to keep the trade balance in deficit until the first half of 2016. Yeah, there's a lot depending on 2016, not only on wheat and grain. That's right. Now, the number of newspaper and online job advertisements slumped for the first time in three months, according to the latest ANZ uh, Group survey, suggesting employment growth could be slipping. ANZ said on Tuesday that total job ads seasonally adjusted slipped 0.4% to 146,121 month on month. And ANZ is expecting the unemployment figures today to come in at about 6%. Now, uh, retail sales figures released by the ABS have come out better than forecast. Retail sales in June rose 0.7% to $224.3 billion. Now, economists surveyed by Bloomberg had tipped a rise of only 0.4%. But if you look closely at the numbers, Gary, I'm not so sure they're that good because the increase was produced by retailers, not produced by retailers selling more goods, not by charging higher prices. Retail volumes rose 0.8%, but prices were flat. All of this is in line with stories of how retailers are struggling to raise prices in the face of strong competition from low-cost international retailers and muted demand. And the numbers show a significant pickup in household goods retailing, rising 2.2%, something economists Tribute to strong housing construction and the slow and the small business package in Treasurer Joe Hockey's last budget. Now cafes and restaurants were also solid, but food retailing fell zero point one percent. So it's a mixed bag there. It's a very mixed bag, and of course the uh, the uh, RBA looks as though it might actually raise interest rates in the next quarter. Well, maybe. Let's, maybe. Let, let's take a look. Pertinent to that is that the total value of Australian dwellings has uh, reached uh, the $6 trillion mark, boosted by the hot property markets in Sydney and Melbourne. And home values across Australia's capital cities pushed another 2.8% higher in July and have lifted 11.1%. That's according to figures released by CoreLogic RP Data. So $6 trillion, that's enormous. It's enormous in a country of this population. Which is why the RBA has kept interest rates on hold at 2% this week. Yeah, and why they might push it up a point. That's right. Now, Australia's manufacturing sector has bounced back in July, returning to stable conditions following a sharp contraction in June. The Australian Industry Group's performance of manufacturing index rose 6.2 points to 50.4 in July, and it now sits just above 50 points. And that's good because it separates expansion from contraction. Yeah, there's a little bit of optimism there because I think it's sorting out a bit and finding niche niche industry. I mean, CSL's a good example. Very good example. They broke through the $100 mark this week. For the second time. That's right. First company that's broken through the $100 mark since the GFC. Now, the Productivity Commission has recommended setting up a two-tier system that would cut Sunday penalty rates for retail and hospitality works while preserving penalty rates for nurses, paramedics and emergency workers and also recommends slowing down the rate of growth in the minimum wage. Now, these findings are likely to be supported by the government, which could then take this blueprint for workforce reform to the next election. It's going to be in for a fight because Labor, the Greens and the unions have slammed the proposal 
and it's going to be an election issue. And if Labor wins the election, Labor's still faced with uh, the penalty rates um, problem. That's right. But it, it means for the government, uh, for the Liberal government, the ghost of work choices is not going to go away. No, that's right. Meanwhile, industry groups have welcomed the government's plan for a long-term naval shipbuilding sector, saying it provides the uncertainty lacking under the previous boom-bust cycle of warship production. And under the plan announced by Prime Minister Tony Abbott in Adelaide this week, the government is bringing forward construction of replacement frigates and patrol vessels with new ships to be mostly built in Adelaide. And these new ships will be made in a process of rolling construction and the workforce will rise to around 2,500. Now that's good news, but cynics reckon it's about ameliorating the anger caused by the broken promise over submarines the ham-fisted handling of a car industry's demise and the broken promises in the first budget. And it's all about saving Liberal seats, like Christopher Pine's. They do say that about Mr Pine that he's harder to get rid of than blackberries, but it might just happen this it time. It might just happen. So just watch that space. And that's it for this week, Gary. Great, Leon. And next week we have a uh, chat. Next week we have, we're talking to David Barrett from Expensify. Yeah, very interesting that should be. So tune in next week. And in the meantime, you can catch us on... Twitter at Talking Biz, B-I-Z-Z, or on Facebook. Stay safe, and we'll talk to you in, in a week's time.